Hello, and welcome to episode 175 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Ambassador Hynek uh, Komonicek, the Czech ambassador to the United States uh, as of March 2017 in his fourth diplomatic post, formerly the director of the Foreign Affairs Department in the office of the president, former ambassador to, and this is one post, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, the Solomon Islands, the Cook Islands, Samoa, Tonga, and Vanuatu, and previously an ambassador to, again, this is one post, India, Bangladesh, Nepal, the Maldives, and Sri Lanka, and also an ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, ambassador Komonicek is also the former deputy minister of foreign affairs for two different uh, administrations, two different times, and is a former professional musician, having played the guitar and lute. Ambassador Komonicek, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Uh, thank you. I'm quite well, and uh, as you can expect, working from the very first day in Washington, uh, probably much, much quicker than I even expected. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on your new appointment. The first question I'd like to uh, pose to you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Well, you know, to, to advance public interest, you do work with your life. Because everything what you do, be it professional or in the private sphere, technically goes to this goal. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it, I could now bore every listener with, with a long, long line of uh, the activities with which I have participated in since 1989, since the Velvet Revolution, which finally brought the end of communism in my country, uh, and I soon after joined the new, that time still, Czechoslovak diplomacy, mm -hmm. but it would be a re a really very boring. But if I should generally mm -hmm. say what, what we were doing for the last 25 years, yeah. we were re-establishing democracy in my country mm -hmm. after 50 years of communism, mm -hmm. which means to advance public interest that you actually create the public mm -hmm. and you create the interest of public in public interest, because both of these concepts were virtually unknown during the communist times. So many listeners to Public Interest Podcast are younger, um, most are American, um, and so experience the Cold War from the perspective of this side of the Iron Curtain. Of course, um, during communist, communist times, during the, the reign of the Soviet Union, prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89, um, prior to your Velvet Revolution, you were behind the Iron Curtain um, in Czechoslovakia as a satellite state of the Soviet Union. Could you take a moment and speak exactly what that period was like? What, how did the tr Velvet Revolution transpire within the context of how did you get involved in, in politics? I guess, what was, the, what was the motivation? What kind of society were you trying to create um, after communism. Okay. Yeah. Let me start from the point of view of that time relatively young person. Mm -hmm. What was wrong with your that time my life? Yeah. Imagine that, that you are like 25, 26, 27 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, you are interested uh, in good books. You cannot read them. They are not available. You cannot go to the bookshop. 
because once a week some books are published uh, according to the censorship list. Hmm. So you cannot read what you want. Uh, it's still the time before internet. So, so your uh, access to information is very, very limited. Hmm. Uh, you want to see the new movies of the director you saw last year? Oh, since the meantime he moved on the banned list, so you will never see any of his movies again. Uh, you want to travel? Well, forget it. Your passport is not valid to any country other than the socialist countries you've been to, which means that four hours from you is Vienna in Austria, and you can be pretty sure never in your life will you see Vienna with your own eyes. Huh. And if you go there... You go there once and you can never go back. Huh. Because you will not be allowed back to your own country because you illegally emigrated to Austria. So if you have life like that, uh, it really sucks you into politics. Because everything what you touch mm -hmm. is politics. You want to go to... Mexican restaurant? Mm -hmm. You cannot go to Mexican restaurant because, surprise, there is no Mexican restaurant because Mexico is a capitalist country, so the cuisine is capitalist, not allowed bank. And that's it. It's hard to imagine for any American of that age, uh, and even harder to imagine even for the generation of, let's say, my children today, uh -huh. because sometimes I hear uh, they must... Listen to me as if I came from the prehistoric times where the things which they take as absolutely automatic yeah. never existed. So Can you imagine that I was 30 years old, uh -huh. I was not speaking a single word of English because it's capitalist language. I have never been in any English-speaking country abroad because most of them were capitalist, meaning enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't seen a computer in my life, I was 30 years old, huh. because it's a very sophisticated device, probably for ideological diversion. So It's very hard to imagine. So on the topic of public interest and understanding what constitutes the public interest, what was the argument that that society, that communist society, argued? How did they say this was in, in the interest of the Czech people, that they should be limited in what cuisine they would eat, what books they would read, where they would go on vacation? Well, these were just the consequences uh, of the basic Marxist-Leninist theory. Mm -hmm. And theoretically, it went like that, if I put it very short. People are not equal. Uh, people should be equal. To make people equal, you must go to the lowest common denominator, because you cannot make a man smarter. You can make him to be a bigger idiot, <laughs> if, you <laughs> if you excuse my non-diplomatic language in that. The result is that if everybody was supposed to be equal, mm -hmm. you must eradicate all inequality in people's life. So, were you... So, okay, so we're, well, let's just, going off that, was inequality reduced? Were people reduced to the same common denominator? Or were there still great inequalities in society, even under that philosophy? Obviously, inequality was not uh, cancelled, destroyed, yeah. eliminated, quite the opposite. It created different set of inequalities. 
so the basic problem of the concept was that it was very, very theoretical. Mm-hmm. It, it counted with creating something what the communists called the new man. Mm-hmm. And probably the new man would love to live in the society like that, which was tailored mm-hmm. to him. The problem was that no new man ever appeared. Hmm. Almost everybody who was trapped in the system was the same old classical human being, so carnivore, eating, <laughs> higher ape, well, who is not thinking about having a new volume of Lenin's philosophy, but why do I have in the local shop just two types of can? <laughs> so, Ambassador Komonacek, I would like to ground this theoretical approach to communism in the, in your life. In, co- in a concrete example, you were a professional musician. Were you a p- professional musician during this communist time, prior to the Velvet Revolution? Exactly, because it had one huge advantage. What? During the communism, it was illegal to be unemployed. Hmm. There was nobody was unemployed, even unemployable people were have to be employed. Yes, everybody got to be employed. Uh, And to be employed was, in a way, uh, let's say, the source of the state control over individuals. Mm -hmm. So one of the few chances how to be free Mm -hmm. was to be uh, a musician. Because musician, logically, is not to be employed for eight hours a day. Huh. Even even better, if you want it to be relatively free in yeah. this uh, system which is unfree, you got to be musician of the classical music. You cannot be a folk singer, it has lyrics, it would be probably a protest song, you are in a deep trouble. <laughs> if, 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 if you play... Uh, Baroque music of Germany of the 17th century, Uh you are free and safe. And that's what I was. I was playing the classical music, 200, 300 years old, without any lyrics. And the two types of jobs which uh, communists more or less respected... Mm -hmm and gave them the freedom was if you wanted to be a professional musician of the classical music mm-hmm. or you got to be a professional sportsman. Hmm. Because in these two professions you were even allowed to travel because you make hard currency for the regime with your travel. You travel abroad, you are good paid, you never see a penny from what you made because you made it for working class who gave you education. Hmm. So, you clearly the political environment in which you were raised had some impact on your career path. But of course, the Velvet Revolution came, and you ended up joining the Czech Social Democratic Party. So, can you explain that transition? You now have illuminated for our listeners exactly what some of the problems were with the communist political infrastructure prior to the Velvet Revolution. This revolution comes. And what do you do? You, do you do you put your lute and guitar on the side and say, I want to be involved in changing? What happened? It, it, it was much more complicated. Uh, because just before the revolution, I decided uh, that I should study university. Mm-hmm. The problem was that I have already graduated university. 
in classical guitar and working class already paid for my university because university education was for free but it was supposed to be just one university mm-hmm. uh, I said okay but there is no law against studying the second university mm-hmm. and they say okay well, well, what do you want to study and I said okay I want to study English and they said okay but the English is a capitalist language you know so it should be studied together with some progressive language mm-hmm. trying to discourage me I asked what's the progressive language they gave me the choice between Vietnamese and Arabic <laughs> uh, I decided Arabic will be quicker for me mm-hmm. and I went to the second university to study Arabic and English Uh, which means that when the Velvet Revolution came, I was not only the musician, I already graduated in classical Arabic from the university, and I graduated uh, in English language and literature from uh, the different university as well. So technically I had three professions when the revolution came, mm-hmm. and the first thing I did when the revolution came was that I left the country because finally I could. <laughs> uh, and I ended up at the uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. But you're not Jewish, are you? Oh, I am Jewish, oh. uh, but, uh, well, it, it was a nice program called Young Jewish Leaders in Diaspora, where, where I studied that time, and my major studies uh, that time was the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Why? Because nobody was allowed to go with the Israeli passport to Saudi Arabia. I had a Czech, Czechoslovak passport, so I could. Uh-huh. So I had a tremendous advantage uh, in that. So I focused basically on U.S.-Saudi relation as a Czech in a Hebrew university in Jerusalem. Completely living out of Europe uh, for a number of years. And then, around the year 1995, I got the offer from the Czech Foreign Ministry. That's basically how I got in. That time, did you apply for that job, or how, no, did, they, no. how did they find you? Oh, uh, that time, the Deputy Foreign Minister tasked the Czech ambassador in Israel mm-hmm. to find some of the Czechs uh, from some of the Czechs in Israel, somebody who is on the on the good ties with Palestinians but would be Jewish. Uh, he was looking through all the Jerusalem to find if there is a Czech living in Jerusalem who is technically living in the Palestinian side of Jerusalem, but he should be Jewish because the Czechs wanted to employ such a person uh, to be uh, the task officer for the Middle East peace process in Prague during the time of Václav Havel, who was still thinking that that that, uh, that might be his way. Uh, there couldn't have been anyone else who checked all those it, boxes. It, it, exactly. A, 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 Were there even many, I mean, Judaism was outlawed under communism, was it not? And there weren't many Jews left because the Holocaust happened right there in... Exactly. uh, So Dayton-land, it it, It's, it's again, a rather rather crazy story because, okay, uh, I never felt any special Jewish connection. It was there was, anti-Semitism directed towards you during no, in the 1980s? No, definitely not, be, be, because uh, there were practically no Jews left. Uh, I never expected myself to be in connection with Judaism or being Jewish, anything like that. Uh, I, I found this family connection just by mistake. So when you were a child, you didn't know you were Jewish? No. no. What did you think you were? I was a Czech. 
It, it was never it was never discussed in the family. Uh, I found it uh, when I was 26 years old uh, because I said, okay, I have enough of the communism. I want to leave the country. They said, okay, so if you want to leave the country, you will pay for your education, which was paid by the working class. You will pay it back. Uh, and we will have to put you on the international market if some country takes you as a refugee. I said, okay do it. They put me on the market and one day I got the invitation to the Dutch embassy. And I said to myself... In Prague? In Prague. Okay, that, that's funny. Mm -hmm. So probably I will be a Dutch. <laughs> uh, uh, I went to the Dutch embassy. Uh, they looked at me and said, okay, listen boy, we, we want nothing to do with you. Okay, absolutely nothing. It's not us who is calling you. We have the other gentleman sitting here who happens to be from Israel. They were a shill. They were a means... Exactly. Uh, and they, uh, the Israelis found out that you were Jewish? Yeah, yeah. they they found, ah. they found me probably in some register and they said, okay, based on the law of return from 1982, you are probably eligible to be an Israeli citizen. Not that we want you. We don't want you. Why uh, wouldn't they want you? Uh, because that's a, that's a law of return, 1982. But uh, they would want you. Yeah. Uh, they want... Okay, they were legally bound to tell me, and at the same they time... They weren't looking for well-educated immigrants? Well-educated uh, classical musicians? They just got a million of them from Russia. <laughs> why, 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 they, why they would want another one? <laughs> Didn't you even know about your grand... Did anyone perish in no, the Holocaust? No, no. Uh, and and then then I uh, okay I said that's really weird that's really weird so I came back and I asked my mother and I said L listen I thought I would end up uh, after immigration as a Dutch but there there was a guy who said I should go to Israel and it's real it was really puzzling for me uh, so is there a, any Jewish connection in our family and my mother told me yes there is this is why you never told me and she said first. It's not good to know. Second, it might harm you. Third, we don't talk these things in the family. So your mother was born Jewish and yeah. knew it and never told you? Never. Interesting. Is it important to you now? Well, what, what is... Okay, well, what is important is that... Probably it helped for me to, to get postgraduate education in Israel, mm -hmm. uh, which really helped me with understanding Middle East a little bit more. Uh, but I, I'm still agnostic. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to transition a little bit back to your diplomatic posts. Mm -hmm. So while you were an ambassador to much of Southeast Asia, again, for our listeners, uh, ambassador Komonichek was ambassador to India, Bangladesh, Nepal, the Maldives, and Sri Lanka simultaneously. Uh, ambassador, you, uh, it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, were instrumental in helping to bring to a close a Sri Lankan civil war. Is that correct? Well, uh, let's say we as a Czech Republic tried to help to end the 27 years old conflict. And obviously, if the state tries to pull the trick, the ambassador of the state must be the person uh, who talks to everybody, helps everybody, so and at the same time doesn't speak to everybody. <laughs> so you're working with the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka which for our listeners is just southeast of the, of the southernmost tip of India, um, historically a place where tea uh, was the basis of the economy under the British Empire. Can you speak about some of your experiences 
going through the Velvet Revolution and your political experiences transitioning from communism to capitalism and how any of that may have led, provided skills to you or background that helped you speak to these civilians in Sri Lanka that would end the civil war? Well, you know, if you go through the transition of the regime, mm -hmm. which is very hard to to experience for the American listener because it never happened in your life. Uh -huh. But let's say if everything changes around you, uh, you get the historical lesson that nothing is for free and nothing is permanent. Mm -hmm. And you start to focus on the things which are really important for your life. Mm -hmm which is the relation to people and the, the relation to the basic values inside the people. Because it, at the end, it doesn't matter what is your political affiliation. What matters is who you are personally. Also, you get to understand that people are not intrinsically good or bad. The same person can help you twice a day and betray you the third time in the same day to help you again five in the afternoon on the very same day. Uh, so people you, are complicated. You, you get the feeling of randomness of your fate. And you get the feeling... It's that a very the, Czech perspective, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and you, it's very Central-European. It's not, it's not. You, nihilist is the one who would not see value in anything. Uh -huh. We are exactly the opposite. We see the value in the very few things which are really important for your life. And it's not 200 things. It's maybe four, five, six. And that, that's what we value. Uh -huh. uh, and also it gives you the lesson that uh, one day you are victim of one side of propaganda, second day after revolution is another type of propaganda, you become immune to people who try to brainwash you because you've seen it all. It's like you are resistant against certain type of ideological pills trying to change your matrix. So, so it makes you a little bit a little bit cynical, but not nihilistic. So how does a philosophical, musical linguist become personal acquaintances or maybe even friends with the president of the Czech Republic such that you end up in the foreign affairs department? Well... Basically, one of not many advantages, if you are from a small country, is that uh, the political intellectual elite is a relatively small circle. Uh, I came back to the country from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in 1995, uh, dealing with the Middle East, and I was one of the few people who knew the area and was not a former communist. Mm -hmm. oh, which then... You were never a member of the Communist no, Party? No. And that didn't inhibit your ability to play classical music? No, because there was no lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, basically, uh, it, it helps. Uh, it helps that uh, of, in the beginning of the 90s, 
the Czech diplomacy, I joined, had to change a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I was relatively soon uh, so just to, to go to... Uh, they, they purged the foreign service of former communists? Yeah, because quite a number of them were Moscow-trained, Moscow-educated and Moscow-oriented people, mm -hmm. which we could not afford to keep uh, in the time of going to NATO, mm -hmm. to going to European Union. Right. Uh, so relatively a lot of the positions uh, were open, even for younger people. Uh, so suddenly, as I've said, 29 years old, I wasn't speaking English. 32 years old, I was a deputy foreign minister, <laughs> uh, number two of the 10 million country in, in English run, uh, running the house of 1,000 diplomats full of computers. Uh, I have never seen five years uh, before that. Uh, Which runs with your philosophy of capricious randomness that is life. Yes, and also it tells you that with all the capriciousness you must be prepared for just a situation because this situation makes you or breaks you. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's basically how the transition happened. That as the country needed new people for new times, I was in a correct time, in a correct place, and I was ready because I was not just a musician I, uh, and I was not just a former student of Middle East. I had like three, four, five qualifications. Mm -hmm. And probably, if, if I think back, I, I had just one ability which really helped me. I was not afraid to make decisions. So I'd like to ask a final question as we approach the end of this podcast. I'd like to ask you to imagine that you're speaking to the, an ensemble of your former co-symphony members um, from the, the mid-80s. Um, who never could imagine that this is where you would end up today. And I'd like you to speak to these fellow musicians about why it is you've chosen this path of public service. Originally saying that you went into music to just simply have more freedom, uh, flexibility in your schedule, ability to travel and to do whatever you wanted without offending anyone because of those absent lyrics, to speak to this group and say how you entered into politics and diplomacy um, and why it has been worthwhile to uh, pursue public service and advance the public interest through these mediums, and at the end of the day, what you hope your legacy will be, what all these efforts will have accomplished. Mm -hmm. Probably I would tell them exactly what I actually did tell them two weeks ago when in the Frankfurt airport I met some of them going from the concert tour from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, oh, so, so how, how, how is the life of the... <coughs> form a musician who, who is now turned politician ambassador. Uh -huh. And I told them, well, you know, it, it, it's not that much different at the end. Because as a musician, you try to bring something to people. To people. As a politician, you try to do the same. Uh -huh. And actually, the book which I use in diplomacy a lot is the old textbook of Johann Sebastian Bach, hmm. How to Write uh, a Proper harmony. And he has the lessons there like the disharmony is the harder, the closer you are to the harmony, which is one of the musicological rules. Mm -hmm. And diplomacy works exactly the same. If you try to persuade your partner, mm -hmm. usually when he's almost erupt in the anger that the negotiations cannot continue, it means you are pretty close to the final deal. So at the end, I found that there is a lot in common, especially about the Middle East diplomacy mm. and the 
art of writing music. Huh. And both comes from you to the people and you just follow your passion and what you feel you are good at it. So that has been uh, Dr. Hinek Komonicek, the Czech ambassador to the United States, uh, the former director of foreign affairs department in the office of the president in Prague Castle in Czech Republic, the former ambassador to Australia, New Zealand, uh, and uh, Fiji, Solomon, Cook, Samoa, Tonga, and Vanuatu, also the former ambassador to India, Bangladesh, Nepal, the Maldives, Sri Lanka, and the former ambassador to the United Nations, who has twice been the deputy minister of foreign affairs for the Czech Republic, who speaks about a harmony in life, uh, making an analogy between music and diplomacy, and sees it uh, speaks about a, a, a lifelong path of public service, that, that providing performance, providing a product for the betterment of the people is something that he not only saw as a musician, but also... Uh, that he sees in his diplomatic work. Um, he speaks philosophically in a Kafka-esque way of the communist times um, and, and speaks of the capriciousness of life that persists uh, even to the present day. And his willingness to accept uh, life as it comes and see no ally as a permanent uh, ally and no enemy as a permanent enemy, but every member of society as a potential uh, person with whom he can have a relation. That, that is how Ambassador Komonicek approaches diplomacy. And for him, public service is, is never forgetting where he came from and, 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 and the, the, the fluidity with which one may adopt and shirk uh, identities, that identities are as ephemeral as life itself. And this very poignant philosophical ambassador uh, concludes by saying, you know, public service is something worth doing, and at the end of the day, uh, one must seek harmony uh, in society with one's fellow man. So, Ambassador, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure, and good day for the listeners. And this has been episode 175 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe at publicinterestpodcast.com, listen on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Should you wish to respond to this conversation, you're welcome to leave an up to three-minute message voicemail for Public Interest Podcast at 240-630-0380, and that message could be posted on the website. And should you wish to support this podcast, you're welcome to offer a contribution of any amount you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.